I just want to welcome you up here to come preach the word to us, and we're excited for how the Lord's going to use you this morning. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Joshua. Yeah. Oh, well, can you guys hear me? Well, it is an absolute pleasure uh, to be with you today. Um, as Joshua mentioned, uh, we will be moving on from uh, this place in San Diego, and we'll be moving to Boise, Idaho, which I learned how to pronounce by having a longtime friend there. It's a very key, understand, if you ever go to Boise, what you consider Boise is actually in Boise, it's Boise. It's a, just a thing. So just wanted to culturally educate you guys this morning. Um, you know, I have a lot of things that I would love to say, uh, but let me pray first, and then I'll begin. If you guys would bow your heads and close your eyes, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful this morning for you. God, we are grateful that uh, you have promised your presence to us in Christ. Lord, we are grateful that you caused us this morning to wake up, to breathe. You caused our eyes to be able to see and our ears to be able to hear. Lord, more than any other thing, we are grateful for Jesus Christ on the cross for us. We are grateful for the gospel this morning. And so, Lord, as we begin to unpack your word this morning, I pray that you would do a unique work this morning of showing us more of yourself, more of your glory, more of your wisdom, more of your power, more of your ability than we have ever seen before. God, would you just saturate us with your goodness, saturate us with your greatness, that we may look at all of our circumstances and all the things that come before us with faith, with eyes that see the way that you see. Lord, would you do this this morning? And I pray that you would keep me emotionally intact this morning as I speak to people that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm going to ask you to do something that may f make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And as a teacher, I have to do exercises and activities to make sure that you guys are engaged. So one of the things that I'm going to ask you to do is to share with your neighbor what you think the best thing that has ever happened to you is. So you can choose which neighbor you consider to be your neighbor. The Bible considers all people to be your neighbor, so that means left or right. It's up to you. Share, take 30 seconds and share what you think is the best thing that's ever happened to you. Okay, go. Okay, we're going to bring the attention back up, to the, back up to the front. You guys are too good at this. If you didn't get a chance to share all the details behind that story, the best thing that ever happened to you, you guys are also very good at sharing after services, which we have noticed just as a church. You guys are fantastic at just fellowshipping. So share more of that story afterwards. Now, I want you to just think for yourself now. So I just took you to the, to the high point of your life, probably, emotionally, 
right? The greatest point of your life. Now I'm going to take you in a different direction, so just brace yourself for a second. I don't want you to share this, but I just want you to think for yourself for a moment, what's the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life? Now, right now, probably a number of things are flooding your mind, emotions, things that you feel, things that you think about that moment. It might be a season in time. I just want you to think about that for a second. Now, I'll share both the best and the worst thing that has ever happened to me. They're not the same thing. Uh, or maybe they are. Okay, we'll see. The best thing that's ever happened to me in my life, besides the fact that Jesus saved me, uh, was my wife, right? Um, which she's not paying me to say this, but this is a huge footnote in her direction. Uh, she's the reason that I can stand up here in a ton of different ways. Uh, she's very much the best thing that's ever happened to me and the best thing that continues to happen to me as I go throughout my life. The second greatest thing is my son, Samuel, who's had a, a year of just good happenings to me, just an amazing blessing in my life, the best thing. When I think about them, my heart is filled with joy. My heart is filled with emotional happiness and goodness and all these things, right? But I can think about the worst thing that's ever happened to me, and I can probably pinpoint, and I'll share it with you just to set up where we're going to go today. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was 17 years old. This was a deep and dark and painful, difficult point in my life, and even when I think about it, all these difficult feelings, emotions arise to the surface, and I feel pain as a result of this, right? All of us come to this morning, come to today with these two things happening inside of us all the time. We have things that are happening to us that are good, things that are happening to us that are terrible, and we have to figure out how to work and navigate through this world in light of this, and we need help in this, Right? Can we just admit that? We need help navigating these difficulties primarily. We feel pretty good about navigating the high points. feel pretty good probably about navigating things that, that are good that are happening to us. But when we get to the difficult portions of our life, we have a lot of trouble. And the Bible is just chock full of help for us. Um, I'm going to ask you guys now just to turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. So if you are an Awana superhero, you probably have the page of Habakkuk memorized. For the rest of us, this is in the Minor Prophets. Uh, it is a book in the Bible. And it is near Zephaniah and uh, Nahum. So if you guys would turn there with me. The book of Habakkuk. And uh, while you're turning there, it's, there's kind of a, a funny personal anecdote as far as how this book came to be such a huge blessing in my life. I don't know about you, but I have grown in my ability to interpret God's word. <laughs> I'll share how you, with you how I used to interpret God's word. Uh, I used one principle, especially in high school, which is called personal relevance. If it meant something to me, it meant something. If it didn't mean anything to me, it didn't mean anything. So for example, if you're already there in Habakkuk 1, uh, we were looking for a verse to just ground our Bible club outreach on, and we decided, here's a good one, Habakkuk 1.5. And this sounds good, right? So look among the nations, God says. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Sounds good. So we just ripped that right out of context. We stamped it on shirts and we started to engage people with the gospel on our campus and people just had no idea that if you kept reading one more verse, you'd see a little bit more about what God is going to do. Notice, 
What is this great thing that God is doing? For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. And if you keep on reading, you'll find out why. It's to mercilessly thresh the nations, including little fledgling Judah, for their idolatry and sin. <laughs> Hi, I'm Trent. I would like to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 1.5. God's going to judge you. Would you like to become a Christian? That's all I got in high school, right? So as we become more informed readers of Scripture, you know, right, that is part of the gospel. God is, has a judgment day that is uh, set apart for us to, to judge both the living and the dead. That's going to happen. God will judge his people. But maybe not the most tactful way to begin with a high schooler who already thinks that Christianity is pretty weird, right? God, thankfully, has done a work in me since that time of taking me out of the standpoint of looking at what's just relevant to me, to what's actually going on in the background here. So let me just set the stage real briefly, then we'll be begin reading some of the back. And just a quick note, too, on this. This is a testament to the, to the trust in God that the elders have. One, that they're willing to let me preach. Two, that they're willing to let me preach the book of Habakkuk, right? So I'm going to be kind of overviewing the entire book. I encourage you to read the whole thing today. It takes about 10 minutes to go through the whole book by yourself. If you get bored in this sermon, just go ahead and just start reading the book of Habakkuk. It'll do you well. Okay, so the context of Habakkuk is that the, the little uh, leftover nation of Judah is facing all of this external pressure from outside nations. What was once a towering, economically prosperous nation has been reduced down to a small, fledgling, idolatrous nation called Judah. If you read through the book of First and Second Kings, if you can make it through those books, you find the historical background of this. But I want you just to imagine for a moment, that during your generation, you've experienced this incredible time of economic prosperity. Things are good. People are worshiping the Lord. They're bringing, uh, quote-unquote, sacrifices into the temple, or they're just going to church. They're bringing sacrifices of praise. Things are going well in your generation, and there is happiness and prosperity and goodness. Now, imagine the next generation down, your kid's generation. There are a bunch of political decisions that are made that end up splitting the nation of the United States into, into half, north and south. Your, your, your friends, what you thought were your friends, are now your enemies. Uh, your, your relatives, your own family, some are in the north, some are in the south, and there's tension and divisiveness. Back in the historical context, there was a temple set up in the north, both at Bethel and at Dan, worshiping two golden calves. People who initially worshiped God are worshiping golden calves as they're ripped in half. Their hearts are feeling that too. Now imagine that that northern nation, what was left of the United States, is invaded by another nation. Those friends and family, the people you love and care about, are taken off or killed. They're taken off into exile or who knows what happened to them. You're not even sure. And you're left by yourself as maybe the size of maybe half of the state of California. And you're wondering, in the midst of all this, this is now your grandchildren's generation, where is God in this? Where is the Lord in all this? So there are outside pressures pressing in on little fledgling Judah, this small area, the last little bit of God's covenant people. 
Not only this, but there are pressures from the inside going out. So pressure coming on the outside economically, politically, that are destroying this nation. And there is also pressure from the inside, meaning that within Judah, Judah itself had become this incredible, idolatrous, sinful, wicked nation. So here's how the ESV commentary puts it. Judah was morally and spiritually corrupt, worshiping Baal on the high places, offering its children to Molech, dedicating horses to the sun god, and allowing the temple to fall into ruin. Now, if you know your uh, uh, Israelite history at all, you know that it's just been a few hundred years since David has reached the high point of his power and Solomon the high point of his power, and things were good. And now things are not good for Judah. And Habakkuk surveys the scene and he begins to ask some very important questions. And this is where we draw ourselves to the text. Habakkuk is a man who lives by faith. He's a prophet, so you kind of expect that. But if you read any more of the, any more of the prophets, you know that people like Jonah are also in there. Just because you're a prophet doesn't designate you as the the most spiritual, awesome person in the world. Habakkuk had issues with, with what God was doing. He didn't understand how fledgling Judah could be still surviving in the midst of all of this. How is it that God is going to enact his plans for his chosen people even while it's Judah's all that's remaining? Even the righteous are suffering suffering affliction. So I want to just guide us by giving us a few practical things here, and then I want to begin just reading. So first, uh, faith, living by faith, having faith that's alive, it means first complaining. I'm going to give you these, and then we'll unpack them. Complaining. Second, it means waiting and watching. And then third, living by faith means hearing, seeing, and rejoicing. And if you're a Super Mario player, you know right now that there's added complexity to each level. Did you notice that? Oh, man, I was chuckling to myself about that. No, no Super Mario players. All right, that's okay. You don't have to raise your hand. So, first of all, living by faith means uh, making complaints. Now, this is counterintuitive, so I just want to set this up as a contrast for us briefly. Habakkuk is going to make a very important complaint. And you might automatically think, this is good. I, lo- I love complaining. I-, I lived in a world this last year where complaining was the most loved activity of all activities, right? And you might ask, what did I do this last year? Well, I was a teacher. And if you know any teachers, or if you are a teacher, you probably know that you're inclined toward this. I can say this because I was a teacher this last year. You're inclined towards complaining. You're inclined towards looking at the fact that you're uh, undervalued, underpaid, underappreciated, complained about. That was my scenario this past year. Right? I was around students who, when I gave them work, and I was, a, I was a Bible teacher no less, when I gave them assignments, you need to read these scriptures. Oh, that's like 10 pages. I can't. No, I can't do that. No way. And just in ensuing, you're laughing, but it's, it, it was sad at, at one level. But around that, Every day, complaining, 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 and grumbling until it's this infectious disease. So I'm driving home, and I'm complaining, like, oh, like, this car is old, and I get home, I'm hungry, and I come home to Lauren, and I, too, am just grumbling. I'm complaining to the point where she got to, to a point mid-year where she was like, I, ser- I just, 
I can't handle this anymore. I can't hear any more about your work, about your job, about your complaints, about your inadequacies. And then I, that was the point that I realized, like, oh, maybe I'm not complaining out of faith. I'm just letting my unbelief spill out. I don't really believe that God's going to actually do anything about this situation. I don't really even believe that these students can change. I don't believe that I can change. I don't believe that I can be a better teacher. I don't believe that God's even involved in this. That's where my complaining was coming from. Habakkuk does not complain that way. Notice how Habakkuk complains. If you would go with me to Habakkuk 1, starting in verse 2. Habakkuk says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Now before you uh, sideline Habakkuk here, because you notice if you've ever noticed conflict resolution or if you've been married or if you've ever had a relationship, you know that when you are stretched to the point, uh, to a breaking point, you say things like always and never, right? And so we see that with Habakkuk. We see this extreme reaction. Uh, Justice never goes forth. You see the point of emotional pain that Habakkuk is in here. He's looking out at fledgling little Judah and seeing that justice never happens. And notice he's a prophet. What's the prophet's job? It's to bring about justice. It's to prophesy, to remind people of the commandments. It is to help people to feel and know the presence of God. And Habakkuk has a vested interest in this. It never works. I preach and I preach and I preach and there's no justice. No one listens to me. You can hear the point of emotional pain that he is bringing up here. The wicked surround the righteous. So you might think right away, this is just a complaint of unbelief. It's not though. Notice who he is addressing his complaint to. Oh Lord. Now, this may not seem significant to you, but it is. This is God's covenant name. He is not blindly looking into the dark and whining out into the distance, Oh my God, God! He's saying, Lord. The Lord is God's covenant name. It is the name that he designated himself by. Back in Exodus 34, 6-7, God says this about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by, watch this, by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when Habakkuk calls out to God and makes his complaint, he says, Oh Lord, this is God's covenant name. And so my, just kind of an application question for this to 
to both uh, maybe wake us up and also help us to think about our own souls when you complain. When you complain, do you cry out to God, O Lord, to his covenant name? Now, you might be inclined toward this, but in the new covenant, we have a new covenant name for God. Anybody know what that name is? It's Father. Father. Listen to Romans 8, 14 through 15. And now Paul is talking to Christians here. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, uh, of slavery to fall back into fear. But you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So when you're complaining, this is not my inclination. When you're complaining, are you issuing it to Father? Father. Loving Father who has my best interests in mind, who loves me fully. And I don't know about you, this is why I got choked up a few minutes ago, but this word, Father, means something to me. Because as my uh, parents split, it was my dad who I was not able to rely on. And when I get to call out Father, I know he has my best interests. When he puts me in a classroom of students who don't want to read the word, he's father. When he leads me to be in San Diego for a year and then calls me somewhere else, his father. That's his covenant name. That's how I can call him. Now, we should follow Habakkuk in this. Now, if you're a non-Christian sitting here and you're wondering, this is just an emotion, as you can tell, I'm emotional. It's just a hypothetical thing to help you get through emotional difficulty, and this is all kind of fake. Well, I doubt that. Psalm 8, 3 through 4 says, When I look at your heavens, the psalmist says, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man, that you care for him. So if, if you're a Christian, or if you're a, if you're a non-Christian sitting here, don't, don't you just wish that you had someone who both set the stars in their place and who's mindful of you, who's aware of you, even if you're a non-Christian? And not, and not only generally about mankind, but about you specifically, the son of man, that you care for him. That's what the Bible teaches. He cares for us. He is both father to us as a group, but also father to me as an individual. That's who God is for us. Don't you wish you had someone like that? You can, you can have him if you trust Christ. So Habakkuk complains to his father. He also, using him as a template for how we should complain, he also complains about legitimate injustice. He's not complaining about how you know, the weather is, which I complained about this morning. Man, it's so hot. Like, I was already sweating. It's like 9 a.m. What is this? He's not complaining about the taste of food. He's not complaining about any of these other trivial passing things that we often verbalize complaints about. He's complaining about a legitimate injustice within Judah. He's complaining to God himself. And Habakkuk here, he lands at what is the apparent conclusion. So I want to draw your attention to this theme a little bit here. To our eyes, 
this is the proper conclusion. He looks out at the world, he sees all the difficulty and the pain and the strife, and he says, God's not working. That's the apparent obvious conclusion here. But notice now what God does. Okay, so first, faith makes complaint. We're going to move on to our second point now. You're like, thank the Lord. We're moving. Uh, Second point here. Living by faith means uh, waiting and watching. Waiting and watching. So God does respond to Habakkuk, which is a huge blessing of grace. He responds to this complaint, and this is what God says. He says, I'm going to raise up these Chaldeans, this bitter and hasty nation, and here's how he follows. In chapter 1, 7 through 11, I'm going to read this for us if you follow along. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Now, does this sound like an answer to prayer to you? If I were Habakkuk and this were the response from God, I would be like, what? You answer my poetic expression of prayer with an even better poem, beautifully painting the ignorance and violence of my enemies? What is this? Look at these descriptions. They gather captives like sand. Their horsemen come from afar. They have incredible endurance. Their own might is their God. That's who they worship. At rulers, they laugh. At kings, they scoff. They make fun of people like us. How, this is, what kind of an answer to prayer is this? It's even worse than you thought, Habakkuk. It's even worse than you thought. Now, again, I don't know about you, but this doesn't seem much like an answer to prayer. And now, this is instructive for us as well, isn't it? Because sometimes we get this this kind of confusing answer to prayer. We pray something, God responds, and we're even more confused than when we started. Right? And at that point, we're likely to tap out and say, I'll go to my phone, I'll go to my insurance broker, I'll go to my skill sets, I'll go to my abilities, I'll go to my education, I'll go to whatever it is that your idol is, we'll go straight back to that and start worshiping and bowing and obeying that because we don't trust the God who gave us an, a confusing answer. Is that, is that fair? And we know that God is not a God of confusion, but he is a God that allows us to spend time figuring out what he's got going on. He wants us to ask more questions. So Habakkuk, again, a model of prayer for us, he begins to ask more questions. He waits, and he watches, and he asks more questions. So go with me to chapter 1, verse 12 through 13. Habakkuk says this, Are you not from everlasting? And notice how the subject of his vision has changed. First, it's, 
God making him look at injustices within Judah. Now he's looking at God himself and saying like, wait a minute, I thought I understood you when I made that complaint, but I guess based on what you just said that I don't even really understand who you are. Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He's saying, God, this makes no sense. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Now, as an educator, you know that if someone is repeating back to you correctly what you just said, that they understand what you said. And Habakkuk is getting this so far. This is what he understands. You who are of pure eyes and see evil and cannot look at wrong, he's got this all right. And this is where his question is. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I thought we had a problem in Judah with injustice, but I guess the problem with injustice is actually in the very character of God. You are watching a sinful nation come and judge a nation that is less sinful than the one, than, than this Babylonian nation. That makes absolutely no sense, right? And we too, we look around the world and we see this. In San Diego, we see this. There are people who are what we see as less righteous than we are who are doing far better than we are, right? We see that. The psalmists see that. And that is a point of confusion, so again, faith waits and it watches verse two, or sorry, chapter two, verse one says, I will take my stand in my watch post. I will station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So notice the posture of Habakkuk. He waits, he watches, and he, and he sees what will happen concerning this further complaint. So we're going to move on to point number three here. Faith, it complains. Faith, it waits and it watches. And now we're going to find out that this, and this is the high point of faith, right? It hears, this is our last point. It hears, it sees, and then it rejoices. This is what faith does. This is living, active faith. So all of us have probably had the experience you are standing outside in the, middle, in the middle of a supposed meteor shower, supposed, and you're looking up into the sky, and you're with people who are far more assiduously attentive than you are, and looking up, oh, did you see that? And you, you think you were looking in the same direction they were, and you didn't see anything. Right? Nope. Didn't see it. So then you direct your gaze to wherever the last shooting star was, and you're looking... Oh, did you see that one? Oh my, oh. They don't even say words. They just give you, oh, it was so cool. Did you see that? No, totally missed it. Then you direct your gaze over there. Oh, did you see that one? It's over there. Oh my gosh. It was like, we went across the whole sky. You didn't see it? I missed it. Or you're in a situation, and this is happening when you're a, you're a kid, maybe, shh. Did you hear that? Hear what? Shh. Did you hear that? Hear, hear what? Shh. Did you, did you hear that? No, right? Okay, so these two illustrations are exactly what's happening to Habakkuk here. He is having his eyes and his ears tuned and refocused to see things as God sees them. I don't know if you've been to the optometrist 
recently, but I see a lot of glasses in, these, in this room, so I, I, I guess that you have. I have. And you, you notice the, the optometrist does this really funny thing where they put the, I don't even know what you call that thing, up on you, this huge mask that gives you lenses that you hope to never wear, right? These giant lenses. And then they quietly in a dark room say, lens one, lens two. Which one is better? And you're like, oh, yeah, definitely lens two. And then they give you more complex ones, right? Okay, lens two or lens three? And then you're like, ah, can I see them one more time? Oh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah, lens three. Okay, lens three or lens four? And you're like, and you want to have the right answer, at least I do. Like, I want to see what they see, whatever it is, because I don't want to be told that I'm blind or something. And like, they're about the same. And you, you kind of get this perturbed look like, let me show you again. No, lens three or lens four. And you're like, they're the same. It's like, oh, I don't know. They send you out of the office. No, just kidding. I've never had that happen to me. But nonetheless, you know if you have vision problems or hearing problems, that you have to have your ears tuned, your eyes refocused. And all of us, in our hearts, we have both of these issues, don't we? We have a hearing problem and we have a sight problem. We don't see things as we ought. We don't hear things as we ought. That is our issue. So I want to just direct you. Um, we're going to come to a close here in the next 10 minutes. Can you guys hang with me for 10 minutes? It's going to be okay? I'll take a deep breath. Ah, oh, good job. God redirects Habakkuk's gaze by explaining to him more about what he's doing. And God does this, and this is very kind of the Lord. If you look in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, 2 through 3, he says to Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he can Run, who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to its end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. So how does God, first of all, focus Habakkuk's eyes? Well, he makes him write. I remember another teacher telling me at some point, like, ooh, you're mean. You're making them write? And these, I'm talking about ninth graders here. Like, ooh, making them write an essay? you're mean, right? God, God's an even meaner teacher in the sense that he makes him write not only on paper, but because I didn't have paper back then, but on tablets. Write this down on tablets. How hard is that? I don't even know, right? That's difficult. But what does it require? Focused attentiveness. Make it plain on tablets. Write with good penmanship on tablets, right? Make it plain. Make it clear. This isn't just for you. This is for other people to read and rejoice and see. This is for the church thousands of years later as it's being preached on a Sunday morning in San Diego. This needs to be plain, what I'm about to say. Watch what God does. He directs his heart, he directs his eyes, and says this, verse 4. Behold, behold. That's again, that's a look. Watch what I'm about to say. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. Behold, look at the Babylonians, I see their soul. Right, we know this from the Old Testament, that God looks at the heart while man is looking at outward appearances. 
God is looking directly at your heart, directly at your soul, directly at my heart, and directly at my soul. And he sees exactly what's inside there. And he looks at the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and he says, their soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But, and here is a promise that runs all the way through the New Testament, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, if you're thinking in Habakkuk's shoes here, that is what you are wondering. Am I going to live or die? And God's promises are all dependent on this fact, isn't it? He's promised his people something. Is he going to live or is he going to die? Is God going to go back on his promises? The righteous shall live by faith. This is the promise of Habakkuk. And quickly here, I want to move to to verse 20. God tunes Habakkuk's ears and refocuses his eyes in one other way. In verse 20, if you flip there, after describing the judgment that he's going to carry out on this wicked nation, this idolatrous nation that God sees properly, he directs Habakkuk to the temple. Verse 20 says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now you might not think that that's super significant, but where was the meeting place between God and man in the Old Testament? It was the temple. Habakkuk had lived probably long enough to know that this, te- this temple was not incorruptible. This human temple that they had constructed in Judah, in Jerusalem, it was not incorruptible. It could fall. But God is pointing him, I think, to a temple that is his in heaven, that is incorruptible, perfect in every way. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So just by way of application, and then we're going to come into a close here with the last song of Habakkuk. Are you paying close enough attention to God, his ways in your life, that you're actually writing things down? Now, this might seem legalistic, but it's just meant to exercise your faith in the sense that uh, for the last couple years, I've been writing down things that were really important to me, prayers that I thought were really important to me. And Lauren and I were going through these a couple of, I don't know, a month ago or so, and just looking at God had legitimately answered these needs. I wasn't necessarily paying attention the whole time. I prayed for a certain thing, continued to pray for it, and then just wait and kind of forget about it and let it simmer for a while. And then come back to it a couple months later and say, like, oh, yeah, I totally prayed about that. And I can see the answer. God has done something. Now, isn't that beautiful? I would encourage you to do something like that. I think Habakkuk models that for us, writing it down, making it plain. Are we paying close enough attention to what God is doing in our lives to write something down? Okay, so we're going to come back to this point of greatest difficulty in your life for a moment. Where do you go with this? confusion. Where are you going to go? You know, you can go to all sorts of places that are really helpful. Counseling is really helpful. Josh and Tab are super helpful. Um, friends are really helpful. But ultimately, where are you going to go? You're going to have to have a place to go with this confusion, with this difficulty, with this pain that you're dealing with. And I would just recommend to you 
uh, the temple. What I mean by the temple is the temple of the New Testament, which is who? Jesus. He is the temple. He is the place that we go to for these things. Go to him with this confusion. He understands you in ways that we cannot understand. He understands your situation and his ultimate plan in ways that we cannot even fathom. So go there. Go to him. He's the one who will sort these things out. But the beautiful thing is Habakkuk gets to see these things or part of these things play out as he gets a vision of God. That's ultimately what we need. And this is going to be our last point here. Um, Faith, it, it hears, it sees, and based upon what it sees and hears, it rejoices. That is the ultimate high point of faith. What did we just do in worship? We rejoiced in who God was. And probably you took a little bit of stirring up to get to that point where you could actually like say something, to you, like, yeah, I'll, I'll worship the Lord in this moment. But this is the high point of faith. If you've been through difficulty down into the valley and you come back up in any way, shape, or form, you are inclined toward rejoicing. Right? That is the high point of faith. One day, that is how we will spend the majority of our time finding new ways to rejoice in the goodness and and graciousness and awesomeness of God. But we have to be able to see him, and Habakkuk does. If you turn to uh, chapter 3, verse 1. And I'm going to brutalize you with some reading, if that's okay, but I think Habakkuk will help us to close this out. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigyanoth, and I don't know if I pronounced that right, but... Neither do you, so it's okay. (laughs) Oh, Lord. Notice he goes to the same person. I have heard the report of you. And your work, oh, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. Before he was asking God, what are you doing? Now he's saying, do it. Do it. I see it. I can see it. Do your will, Lord. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, Remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Now what's happening to Habakkuk as, he, as he's seeing this, right? He's seeing God all the way from the beginning. He's getting the real vision of God and his greatness. His brightness was like light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels, right? He's remembering Egypt, God's victorious battle against the Egyptians and taking them out of Egypt and rescuing them and redeeming them. This is who God is. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Remember, Habakkuk was asking, are you not from everlasting? Now he's had these things confirmed. He is, in fact, everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea? When, notice who's riding out on a horse now. When you rode on your horses. God has multiple horses, apparently. On your chariot, but one chariot of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. What kind of king can do that? Only God. The mountains saw you and writhed. 
The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Now, I don't know if you're like Habakkuk here, but if you see God like this, you realize that the biggest problem in your world is not the worst thing that's ever happened to you. The biggest problem in your world is your own sin. It's me. I'm the problem. I'm the one with the issue. I'm the one that needs to be readjusted. And so this is what Habakkuk ends with. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And this is the, this is the rejoicing of faith. This is our lives, isn't it? Though the fig tree should not blossom, that we don't get the job promotion that we want, that we don't get the kids that we want, that we don't have the marriage that we want, that we don't have the appearance that we desire, that we don't have everything as it should be, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Though there be no cereal in the pantry, right? (laughs) The things we're inclined to complain about. Though there be no food there, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Oh, can you see... The difference between Habakkuk that we started off with in chapter 1 and Habakkuk that we ended with in chapter 3. Oh, what a beautiful transition. And if you're a Christian, you are in process the same way. And God himself will take you there. He will take you from the questions of, Oh Lord, why do you make me look at wrong? to the point of rejoicing in the God of our salvation. He will do that in all situations. He will do that for you, he will do that for me, and he will do that for all people. And he has done that in Christ. This sermon is not meant to be a sermon of, you should be more like Habakkuk. You know, really get out there and start waiting and watching and hearing and seeing and rejoicing. Come on, you all, (laughs) let's go do it. This sermon is to say that Christ has already done and accomplished all these things for you. Don't you remember Christ, right? Who saw injustice for what it was. Don't you remember Christ who in the Garden of Gethsemane waited and watched and heard and saw and ultimately rejoiced 
as he saw absolutely none of the fruit of his efforts or what appeared to be the fruit of his efforts as he was crucified for your sin and for mine, the fig tree didn't blossom for him on the cross. There's no flock in the field for him. In fact, he's the one who's cast out. But what happened? He was raised from the dead. So as we turn to the Lord's Supper, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to enjoy and remember what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Father, we are again just grateful and we rejoice in you for your greatness and your goodness. Lord, would you use this time of of taking the Lord's Supper to encourage our faith despite our difficulty, our pain, and our suffering. God, we look to you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.